Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 14 of Control the Coronables. Today we have a British tennis legend. He coached to the age of 83. He's currently 87 years old and he looks like he's 57 years old. He's worked with pretty much every British tennis player that you could imagine. He's going to give us insights into his philosophies and you'll hear about the famous running squats, where that started and why he did did that with so many players that he became so famous for and many more amazing stories. It's John Hicks, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy the show. So John Hicks, how are you doing? Lovely to have you on the show. Fantastic, Dan. You haven't changed a bit, and I've been looking forward to this for a couple of days. No, it's great to have you. To those that are listening, I would imagine most most of you will know John Hicks. It's uh, certainly in the British circle. It's a name that everybody in the tennis world knows, but somebody who has coached hundreds of international level players, you know, lots and lots of national champions, the, the list goes on and on. But more importantly than that, somebody who's been responsible for for building amazing characters and people over the years as well, John. And I'm, I'm so excited and, and we've, been, we've been letting people know a little bit about this because there's been, there's been a little bit of in the tennis world talking and, and everyone's been getting in touch. And I think there's a lot of excitement to hear from you. Um, so a big, a big welcome. And how I'd like to start, John, and this is, this is almost my curiosity as much as anything. How did you get into tennis? Right. Well, I've always been a sportsman. Yeah. And uh, football was my first game, and I played pro for Coventry and, and then some semi-professional with Alliston and, um, and Banbury. And because of that fitness training, um, I, went, I went to a school which was pretty um, sports-orientated. It had been evacuated. I lived in Coventry, and it it had been evacuated to Banbury during the war. Then when they went back to Thorpe Bay in Essex, I went back with them and they had a tennis court. Now I was about 13 then, I think. They had a tennis court and the sportsmaster was a good tennis player. And that's how it happened. Nothing special, nothing special at all. But at about 15, 16, I was a fair player and I played with a little bit with John Horn, who was the tennis pro at Thorpe Bay. He was a British professional tennis player of, of some standing. And so when I went back to Coventry, I went to the local club, played tennis for them, got into their senior team when I was about, I suppose, 17, 18. Um, and uh, from there progressed into the county team. And I mean, and that's how it happened. That's uh, how everybody happened. You went to a club, you hung around, you won a few tournaments, and then you played for the county. And I played for Warwickshire in groups one and two. I was right down the bottom of the, of the team, I might tell you, in, in the five and six positions, but it was in group one. Because of my job, which was, I was in a fundraising um, company for cancer research. I traveled all over the, the, all over the country. As a result, I played county tennis for Cambridgeshire, and then after that, North Wales. They were always weaker than Warwickshire, so it kept me in the county game. And I eventually finished up in North Wales, and that's when the story really begins, where I started to coach locally for the, the juniors and some adults, and then I started a full-time squad, and that was the story. To North Wales. Yeah. And uh, I decided to retire from what I was doing. And a boy called Mike Walker from North Wales, he was under 16, national player, had been pretty good at under 14. Um, his father, he, he could have played for Manchester United, but his father was absolutely mm -hmm. furious that he didn't go to Man United, but he stayed in the tennis game. 
He'd had a terrible year. Father wasn't helping him with his tennis. Mother was doing three jobs a day to keep him in the game as much as she could, but he was going to quit. So I worked with him one weekend before he went down to um, Cardiff for a junior international match. Wales against, oh, I think it was against Ireland and Scotland, the, one of the, uh, the triple country ones. And uh, I, I thought, no, he's pretty good. You know, and I thought, well, why on earth are you giving up? So we had a chat and I said, okay, you come and live with me and, and train with me. And as long as you sit with the program, won't cost you a penny, but I guarantee you will be one of the best juniors in the country. So he did. And he trained like a dog for about three months and he had some great results. He went down to Torquay, won the indoor tournament there. And eventually people got to realize that he was becoming quite a good player. So that attracted, as it just so happens, Jonathan Cappadonna, uh, Joanna Griffiths, and the other one? Oh, Jeanette Barber. They were my original four players. And they all became national champions. Um, Mike made Davis Cup squad, um, you said, and she became a Fed Cup player for Ireland, and it just just snowballed. I suppose my best year, as far as I was concerned, was when I went down to the um, I went down to the Nationals at Eastbourne, and I hardly watched the main players. I watched the consolation. And I watched the early, early rounds because that's where I get my players from. I always used to take second and third rate players. Yep. Hadn't got a good program, didn't hit enough balls, didn't have the money to get trained properly. And then I invited mm -hmm. them along. And uh, they used to, they stayed with me. Six lived with me in my house. Six lived at a farm over the road eventually when I'd got a big, another farm down the road two miles down the road um, when I'd got a really big squad but initially I had, I had uh, Nick Gould national champion Simon Ainley double national champion. Um, I made some notes because um, it, it's uh, it's not easy to remember all these things I don't want to upset anybody by not mentioning them so um, Monk I, I don't know if you know John Monk he was from Sussex yeah. He, do you remember John? He's about your age. 79, 79 he was born. You were 80, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he came to uh, um, another one you, you were fishing with, uh, Trotters. Yeah. Trotters, we went to the European Championships in either Austria or Switzerland, I can't remember. And uh, while we were there, Trotters that year actually, was, and Batesley was the third. Um, yes. If you can get John Monk, coach John Monk, to beat Roger Federer, that has to be the greatest coaching achievement. Hang on, this was the, this was the British under sixteen team. I wasn't working with Monk at that time. I got him later. <laughs> I got him after after that. But I, but he always said I had the best result of anybody on the tour. You know, and he didn't. I think he lost he lost second round of the of the actual main main thing. But that was fantastic. And we, I travelled to. I mean, I, when Richard Lewis took over, he actually asked me if I'd like to become the under-16 national coach before yeah. he actually got the job, because right. I'd done some work for him uh, for the LTA a little earlier, taking going independently with players to um, Italy. I, I became Mr. Italy eventually, so I used to go for the first I think it was five weeks of the season to Reggio Emilia, Bologna, um, Milan and uh, had some good players on those tours. Always used to have a beer with the best coaches I could find. Have a chat with them and say to you, okay, what are you doing? Johan Sjögren from Sweden. Yeah. We used to bend the game inside out and what's going to come next, you know, how the hell are we? And I tell you this, we could never beat Sweden as a, as a nation. We yeah. never lost to them. I tell you, as, as, when I, I was coaching the under 16, we never lost to them. But they still did better than us in the world youth because they were runners up and we came fifth, I think, or so. Well, I remember those matches in at Bisham that we used to play against Sweden and Holland. We used to take it in turns, didn't we? Boy, how about the early trips to Holland on, on the ferry? Sounds like six o'clock in the morning or something, yeah. <laughs> it was a really dramatic one where um, 
I think it was something like me and me and David Sherwood. It was thirty six all, <sighs> all of the teams, and me oh, and David were playing in the deciding match because it was all age groups. I and wasn't in charge of that match, and I wasn't very good at keeping my cool at certain points, as you know, Hixie. And uh, the, there was quite a big crowd, and, and I was getting like re- irate, arguing back and forth with the Dutch. I think we won a final set tiebreak to win like 37-36. Unbelievable. But I I, I behaved so badly, I didn't actually enjoy the win. because I I think because I was... Was this the doubles? Was this the doubles you were playing? Good doubles player, weren't you? At times I could play a little bit. The best, yeah. I could play some OK dubs, that's for sure. So, Hixie, in terms of your philosophies, which... How, how early in your coaching career do you think that you get got your philosophies straight? And I've spoken to quite a few people before this podcast. Obviously, I have. I've got a, a lot of good experiences with yourself. John does. We spoke to lots of different players. Yeah, and the, yeah. The squads, because again, anyone that anyone that knows Hixie, it, it almost became not. It's not a running squad. It's a Hixie. It's a Hixie, I think, that we could almost get them. So where did the running squats come from? Well, uh, running squats, one of my favourite exercises as a footballer. And I knew that if I had to demonstrate the running squats, they'd be perfect. And so, and I was good. Another exercise I used to do was fast feet. And right up till the age of about 60 yard, I was still faster feet than any kids that I ever worked with. And, yeah. you know, and those are really important. I think that if you're going to be a good coach, you've got to be honest. And you've got to work harder at what you do than the player works at what he does. They're totally different. Totally different. It's your job to develop that boy, mainly boys, girls as well, as good people. They've got to be proud of who they are outside a tennis court. And that brings pride and performance onto a tennis court, I think. I agree. John, I, I, I remember in my short time working with you at Wrexham, um, unbelievable period of, of, of my learning uh, as a professional tennis player. But I remember the warm-ups so well, and the warm-ups were just phenomenal. I mean, uh, it was like a, a full-on fitness session before we actually started hitting balls. And um, just like that, it, it included sprints, it included mountain climbers, but more importantly, like you said, you're totally right. Just getting your mind in the right place and really, really that you were fired up before, before the session started. So, um, yeah, I just think it was a, a, an unbelievable uh, environment that you created uh, for the players. And you had a lot of good players even at that, at that time when I was over there. I know Matt Smith was the, was the top sure. player in the academy. But uh, from my experience being in it, you, you really, really set that tone and everybody told the line. Yes, it's quite funny actually because I have actually been to other places and done that warm-up and they thought it was a training session. <laughs> so I know, uh, I just believe that if you see an athlete, see a top athlete preparing for a 5,000 meter race, they warm up for maybe three quarters of an hour before they go into the race. Now, if it's right for the world's best athletes, it's certainly right for the world's best tennis players. And you have to, you have to warm up and you've got to realise why you're doing it. You, you, you want to be so prepared when you walk on that court. I mean, if you're going to warm up while you're, while you're in the middle of a match, what a waste of time that is. Absolutely. Yeah, how many matches are lost by going to break down in the first game because the player's not, isn't ready as well? Absolutely. But that mentally, mentally, you know, it's, yeah. it's everything. You, you know, you don't think clearly unless the blood's flowing. Yeah, yeah. So you've got, to get, you've got to get your muscles warm, your mind warm. Yeah, we, we, spoke to, we spoke to Dan Evans a, few, a couple of weeks ago. He kindly spoke to some of the players at the academy. And he talked about that, actually. He talked about how he felt that at, at futures level and even challenger level, it's amazing how many people don't start well. And he said, mm. you, get, you get these people that think the big moment is three or 30 or, or four yeah. or 30 or. He said, whereas he, he actually said, I think, he said, it's like people are stupid. He said, because I know that an unbelievably important time is the first point of the first game. And he said, it's unbelievable how often I get a break ahead because people just aren't 
on at the races. They, they're not about no. that at the start. So I'd love to talk about as well, Hixie, and you've touched on it, is tennis players only play normally. If they have a good career, they play till 28, 29, 30. Mm-hmm. You know, if they have a great career, maybe they go into their mid thirties. So, so the work that I put that you're doing and you have done as a coach, when I even when I, and I've not studied it, but when I think, I think Mark Hilton now coaching, yeah. Canada, oh, coach, you know, coach Kyle Edmund, you know, Mike Walker's obviously gone on and done lots of different things. Yes. In, like Simon Ainley, you know, with, with tennis Wales, yes. you know, Mike Price coaching Grand Slam champions on wheelchair you know ian flanagan runs a a successful business now in in the world of events and these these, are these are names i would have raised there's no doubt these are names i would have raised absolutely absolutely And, and i think your impact and and i don't know what your reflection on that is but your impact, it's not just for young tennis coaches, including myself, youngish, and, and tennis coaches that, that, are, that are even younger. It's not just about what happens on the court there and then, is it? You know, no, it, definitely it, not. That. Have you got no. any, any insights into that that might help some young coaches out there? Maybe something that would have helped you when you were, let's say, a 30-year-old coach. A bit of advice well, you would well, give. Yeah, I, I think I was a good tennis player, even, even in when I... I was in my 50s. I was still playing county tennis right up until I think I was uh, 51 or something like that with North Wales. Right. And I played a bit of events after that. But the thing is, it's not the playing side, it's the coaching side to me. I think that, how can I put it? I think that players, you don't tell players how to play tennis. You ask them how they see themselves playing tennis, what sort of game do you want to play, and then help them to play that game as well as they possibly can. If you can sneak other things in without telling them. I remember Flex. Um, we went to we went to Florence and you got a big serve, you know, I mean you know Flex better than I do. And uh, we went there and he would not serve volley, would not. And so I used to say to him, you don't need to serve volley. I said, you're great off the ground, I said. But what I did, I, I, um, when you, I, charted, I charted all his games. Yeah. And I said, and at the end, I would say, this in the first round, I said, go, oh, very good. I said, they say you don't volley, but you came forward five times and won four points. You didn't. I think he came forward once. But having said that, next game, Oh, you came forward eight times then, seven points out of eight times. That's fantastic. But you don't have to do it. You know, you feel comfortable out there. Towards the end, oh, no, McLaggen charted his game. <laughs> McLaggen said, well done, Flex. You came in 21 times. That's a bit over the top, <laughs> Miles. But anyway, come the final, he beat uh, a Bieber, I think it was, having beaten... Ah, let's just think. He beats Cock in the semi-final. Do you remember? I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Check lad, yeah, he beat him two and two or something like that. And he must, but he did come forward and knock someone. And to me, he was so convinced that yeah. he was playing a big serve ball and a big chip. But all he was doing was doing what he was good at and occasionally seeing, because you mentioned it, seeing that he could go forward and went forward of his own volition rather than, oh, because he's at the side and he's expecting me to go in and volley, which you know is... is, And I always think that coaching is a job I would have done for nothing and got paid good money for, good money. And I think a tennis player, a a good one, is someone who wants to play. He loves the game and he wants to play all the time. I'll tell you two people, Andy Murray, Knew, knew more at 10 than I did at however. I took him on his first trip abroad That's when he was 10 and Jamie came, he was 11. And we went to a place near Rouen, anyway, it was um, uh, Yannick Noah's Tournoi de Land. And he, we took them there under 12, one of the best, one of the best in the, in the, in Europe. Yeah. And, Andy beat Monfils, no, lost to Monfils, 6-4 in the third in the semi-final. 
Yeah. Jamie beat Montpiece love and one in the final. Mm. And Andy said, yeah, but he wouldn't have done it if I hadn't tied him out in the semi-final. <laughs> but it, it's like it, it's like all of them. He could have been could have been a top footballer that yeah. chose tennis. Yeah. Tim, absolutely sport Billy. Mm. He, he played anything, but what a tennis player, what a person. I mean, he used to, even even just a few years ago, before the Albert Hall tennis, he would come and train at Bisham. And the example he set there for the kids was unbelievable. And he would, if, they, if I gave the kids running squats, he'd do the running squats. You know, a wonderful man, fantastic. And, In terms of, you mentioned a couple, because obviously through, through the last 30 years, 20, let's say 25 years, Obviously, Tim and Andy stand out, and now obviously Kyle and Dan and people. But in terms of, I suppose, grand regular Grand Slam business end, what's been pretty close to them, and, and certainly from a young age. One, could you see that at that age? And two, what stands them aside from all the other great players that you've worked with? Okay, they they both were tennis lovers. That's yeah. to say, they loved the game. They knew the game inside out. And equally, they were very self-confident. They had total belief in what they did. They, I mean, Andy, from younger than 10, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure he thought, nobody can beat me. Mm. He used to have a, a, a double-handed backhand, which he played on the slice. And as I once said to him, uh, Andy, why don't you go one-handed out? He said, oh, I can beat these with this. A month later, he'd come in and say, hey, Hicksy, what do you think of a slice backhand? But he wouldn't give you any credit for mentioning that. It was always him. You know, he was totally self-sufficient. And yeah. I think self-sufficiency is a great thing. I bet, for instance, we, we talk about coaches. I talk about my coach and the benefit I was to the players. But I'll tell you this. Coaches don't make players. Players make coaches. If you're lucky enough to work with that type of player that does as you suggest, never tell, you know, you think, what do you think of? Talk to them, encourage them to make decisions themselves. You're going to be a good coach because they're going to be a good player. And as soon as they're a good player, what a bloody good coach that guy is. Absolutely. That's what it is. But players don't make coaches. I mean, coaches don't make players. Players make coaches. No, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I want, but one thing I would say, and I think you've done this better than anybody I know, coaches do make environments. Sure, sure. That's very true. That's very true. Yeah. Now, there's a player, totally talented, good footballer again, good golfer, anything. But, and he could beat Hills in practice. Yeah, young. He could beat, he could beat Hills. Yeah. Magic. He got hands like magic ones, yeah. but he was never committed to the physical side of the game, yeah. and he'd always have an excuse when I say, "Okay, a couple of hours physical." Now, oh, I've got a private. Uh, my dad's arranged for a private coach for me, a private physical trainer for me, and I'm thinking, "Yeah, yeah," and and that was one of his biggest weaknesses. But <laughs> he, he was the best. He and um, the boy. Um, his name, Twelves at that time, 19, born 1982. And he, he took that ability right through. He was a good under 16, he was a good under 18, but the best time he ever played was when he played at Queens yeah. and qualified, beat Philippusis. Yeah. Then he beat the Austrian, begins with an age, Havlik, or I can't think of his name. Yeah. And then he lost to Groschon in the third. I mean, what a, I mean, what a performance that is by any standard for a player. I mean, he hadn't even been playing or training regularly. <laughs> he decides he's going to play Queen's Qualis, plays it and qualifies. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It is, it is. But um, Ian had unbelievable hands. He was phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal hands. And uh, like you said, yeah, great, great talent to the game. Great talent to the game. Yeah. How do you... Because you've also, when you, when you talk about Wrexham, where, where you've spent the, the majority of your time, and like you say, you would take almost the second, third-rate players, I yeah. would imagine had some difficult characters, had some difficult mentalities to deal with at, at certain stages. But you, 
you always seem to get the best out of people. How would how did you do that? I just set I, I set very definite boundaries on behaviour. I only ever had only sent two players home from the squad, which I thought was a pretty good record. So they'd all they all did extremely well, but this was something I couldn't handle, and two left. I would, yeah. It doesn't matter about who they were. Um, but I don't know why. You know, everybody was highly competitive as a as a as a group. Nobody was special. Nobody got special treatment. They all hit the ball well. They all trained hard, and they all had belief. And I used to say, "You're here because the LTA thinks you're useless." I used to really fight the LTA. I used to fight you guys at Bishop. I wanted to beat you guys. That's what that's what I was trying to do. Get players who were better than you. You were the best in the country. Yeah. And I, I used to want to do better. It was difficult with the bloody players you took. You always had first pick admission. But um, we did okay. We competed quite well with anybody. Hilt beat Dicko in the in the um, under eighteen final, which yeah. wasn't bad, was it? Uh, uh, Foxy and Spinksy won the doubles. Uh, I'm going back to, to that sort of time if I can. Trouble is, my mind, I'm old, and my mind tends to blur, and I think they're all the same age. And, but you talk, about, you talk about people, Tim. I took him to Olivetti's with uh, Mars McLaggen, Mar Hughes, um, somebody Matthews, married Ian Bates, Heather Matthews, <laughs> and playing on a different court from the boys. The doubles were on. Um, Tim and Mars were playing Marsh and uh, Diego from, from South Africa. And the girls were on another court. So I went to watch the girls on theirs. They won. And I came back and uh, Miles and Tim are 1-4 down in the first. Miles is serving. Tim is standing on the baseline <laughs> alongside him while he's serving. Miles gets three first serves in and he loses the game to 15. So I walk around the back uh, where, um, as they sit down, I said, Tim, get back up on that net and play men's doors or you wear one of the girls' skirts in training tomorrow. So anyway, they, so they eventually lose one and three. And when they come off, I, I was not best pleased. And I said to, to Tim, he's the nicest guy and terribly small at under 16. He's really tiny. And I said, you're not here. I said, well, they were—they got me under pressure at the net or something. I can't remember what he said. I said, it doesn't matter. It's not about winning. It's about developing a game for the future. And I said, you're going to have a great game for the future. I said, but off you go around the track and think about it. So he goes off. Right. Victor Pecci is playing is at the tournament with three gorgeous girls. And he's just taken up um, an agency of making women's dresses. And they're all dressed in this fabulous outfit that he's supplied. And the uh, television come along because Petty was God in Italy. He'd won the Italian a few times. And um, so we go and, the, and a, a television crew comes in. So they get Petty on all about his girls, just that and the other. And, and then they say to me, would I say a few words as to why I go out there? So I say, yes, we come here. Fantastic facilities. You supply great quality of opposition for us. We don't have anything like this in Great Britain. Fantastic courts, you know. And, uh, and we should definitely be coming for a long time yet. That winds up. We have a couple of fizzy drinks. And uh, then I go into dinner. This is some time later, of course. I mean, <laughs> at least an hour. And I get to sit down. And uh, there are the lads giggling away and laughing. I thought, what are you laughing for? They said, is Tim having dinner with us? I'd only left him running and the kid hadn't stopped. He was still running. I won't tell you how long later. But so I go and get him and I apologize for future. He said, that's right, he said. So we're putting the, the bags in the back of the car to go home to the hotel that night. Tim puts his in, I'm behind him. I put mine in and he closes the boot lid on my head and cuts my head open. I said, is that, a, is that a, re a revenge for me making you run all afternoon? But, you know, it's just one of those tales that comes up. And I thought, I thought uh, you might like to hear it. Absolutely. And you must, you must have a tale of someone giving them physical fitness and, and them not doing it or, or stopping or catching them. You must have had some of them. Well, if I have, I can't remember them. 
I've had I've had people. I, of course, I have. I can remember early on. See, most of the kids that I took, I took because they didn't have a program. They didn't play enough tournaments. They didn't know what training meant. And I was famous for bringing grip when they first came to, I put plasters on their fingers, grip because they got blisters in the palm of the hand, because they'd never hit so many tennis balls in their lives. And they didn't know what pain or sore hands were. And I can remember Jeanette Barber, I had her running up the sand hill, she fainted. I had to carry her home. The boys, if they weren't sick, I hadn't done my job properly. Yeah. Early on, when they first came, they were all sick. Yeah. It's, it's a question of, if you've done that, fantastic. You didn't stop. They'd always come back tremendous. And they were, I tell you, there weren't many fitter guys in Great Britain than the boys on the squad. No. John, I, I, I'd be a big, uh, big believer in that type of training myself and I, I really love that type of, type of work and that mindset that you, that you create and the environment that you create for your players. Do you think that coaching now has changed compared to coaching um, when you were coaching during that era? No, I don't. I, I, I think that the most enlightened coaches at that time, and they're the ones I was always talking to, Nick Saviano, Jan Shergren, the Russian coaches, anybody who I could crib from, anybody I could learn from. I used to watch the Russians training. Boy, they, they were tough. And I've never, I'm never negative. I never say, you know, you have, you've got a weakness or, or thing. I've always said, and McLagan always brings this up with me. He said, you always let us feel we were the best players in the world. And that's, that's what I believe. Lead them, give them confidence, give them self-belief. You know, in any sport, if you, if you have self-belief, I was never very skillful, but I was very fit and very fast. And you know, I was effective because I knew that in the last 10 minutes, I was quicker than that fullback down the other end. I could run around him if I had to. And if you have that fitness and you have that belief, you're a hell of a performer at anything. And Tim, sport Billy. We were at Milan uh, and he was playing with tennis balls and he balanced three balls, one on top of the other. And all round, all round, all the kids, all the players were trying to balance three balls, one on top of the other. Nobody could. But Tim, it's amazing. He, he'd walk around and then they all were trying to do this. He was so talented and such a nice guy. I never appreciated, in my opinion, for how good he was. Gets my thought up more than anything else is when people talk about oh Tim Hemmer, he never even oh, won. Yes, I'm, I know. What you know the, the guy, the guy's gone from what he went from to then, to then five out of six in the <laughs> finals. Any finals of French Open? He won a, didn't he win it? I think he came in as a reserve for a world championship once and beat all the matches he played. He won. Yeah, he no, I, late. I think he did. He won Paris. He won Paris yeah. 1000. Yes, he did. One year. Um, no, incredible. And obviously, he was a bit older than me, but he was kind of our our era. And it was, and it, he always had an aura about him, Tim. And even now, I think, I think because he hasn't, I also think it's a shame he hasn't been heavily involved in tennis. And I, I always think, say the same. Yes, I always say the same. I'd love him to have more effect because he would have effect if he was at that level where he could influence what was happening at the top end. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know whether he really wants, wants to do yeah. that. But no, the story Ben, ben Harron told me, because I know he, he goes into, <laughs> Abby a little bit, but he also goes into into reads a little bit. Yes, and uh, and this would be uh, this would be in line with your philosophies, John. It would be in, in line with I'm sure all of ours now as as coaches. But Tim was hitting for like half an hour, and and he and he called one of the the, the guys he was hitting with up to the net, and he said, um, "How many mistakes have you made?" And they said, "I don't know." He said, "How many mistakes have you made?" I don't know. He said, well, I've made one. And it was, it was the backhand. I was pulled a little bit out wide. I hit a backhand. I hit the top of the, the net tape. And I didn't quite cover the ball with the backhand. 
you need to own every shot, every area that you get. You know, and, and I just heard, listened to a podcast this morning, actually, Magnus Norman. And, and that was one of the big things Magnus Norman said in the podcast. He said, look, all of these, the, the best players, they value every single ball. You know, and you go around something around the world and too many juniors are just happy in the first 10, 15 minutes for balls to be spraying here, there and everywhere. And I think it's like us as coaches trying to grab those little bits of actually that right there, is, that's what makes a difference. You know, yes, it's scale, it's talent, but we talk about some really talented players that haven't made it, but having that absolute value on every single ball. Um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I must admit, I was a disciplinarian and a very unfair at times, but that was one of the running squats. If you made an error in this, in a specific drill, 10 running squats, yeah. three errors, 30 running squats, you know, this, and I think that those are things which do focus your mind on the necessity for winning a point. You don't make errors, yeah. but you've got to take chances. So how do you, how do you relate the two? You keep telling them you're allowed to make mistakes. But not in, I guess, I think it's bringing it back to, to the circumstance. If it's, if it's me and you warming up and down, up and down the middle, ah. Errors aren't acceptable, but if we're playing points and there's a bit more risk rewarding, yeah. then you know exactly. it comes down. John, I want to shift gears a little bit because there's, there's, there's a very important person we haven't mentioned yet, arguably the most important person, and that is your wife. Fantastic. Yeah. We wouldn't be doing this if my wife wasn't capable of doing it because I, I can't even I can't even switch it on with anything else. <laughs> So to start with her, her ability to get on a Zoom call, but but just I guess specifically to Jan because we all we all love Jan in the in the tennis world as well, and she's been a, a massive influence on on many. Absolutely. Also then specifically as for the role of a wife of a of a tennis coach. You know, I'd, lo I'd love to to hear your thoughts and get into a bit of detail on that as well. Let's go back to the basic requirements for the people on the squad. Yeah. The actual behavior around the house, the food that they ate, uh, the quality of that, and and everything. I mean, Jan, without Jan, I couldn't have done anything. She did all of the secretarial work. She did all, all the financial work. She fed the kids. She did all the housework. <laughs> uh, I mean, and I was away from when I was at Wrexham. I was probably working 10 hours a day. Because don't forget, after the squad, I've got individual, I've got the local kids, the local, but Jan was the be all and end all. I hardly saw my kids yeah. at, at times, uh, which I regret terribly, but Jan was the one who held the whole thing together and the kids loved her. I mean, her tuna and, and sweet corn sandwiches are famous the, the, the world over, and we ate well. And they ate well, but they weren't allowed to eat rubbish. And yeah. Jan was very firm about that. So if you think I worked hard, she worked harder. And she, she you know, I mean, she, she, she's unbelievable. Still is. Still looks after me. I don't do anything at all. She does, does everything. I mean, I just go for a run, sit and read a book. Uh, and that's about it. <laughs> no, I, I keep myself fit. And, and Jan, it's only this morning. She said, I better make it. Says the Hoover's been around this morning. Not me. Jan does it everything. Everything. And if, 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 if ever I, and I can't think how lucky I was to meet her and marry her. And uh, I'm eternally grateful. No, that, that's As are the tennis world, John, as well. And, and I think to take it away from being just specific on Jan, because she, she is amazing and one in a million, and, and to have that. But there, there is thousands of tennis coaches around the world there's there's lots that go on the journey of also helping players and, and it's sometimes not talked about you you have a player who is obviously in the headlines or is performing on the court you then have a coach who's dedicating themselves around that and traveling but there's then another layer you know and i think it's it's really important that that we do bring attention she travel with me quite a lot you know yeah. uh, if there were girls in the squad she would travel with me and went to many places. She came down the World world Youth. She came right. uh, when we went down there. Got very friendly with the 
planting some some hobnob I never met and uh, had a thoroughly good time, which she deserved. But what I'm saying is, she would even at weekends when I went to tournaments, she would come. She was just as interested in the players as I was. She yeah. she would know, you know, the results. She knows the results better than I know them. She's so into the game that it's and she actually plays not a bad game, but she had a she's had a melanoma a few years ago, which she's had cut down. She's had to be fine, but she's uh, she's having to uh, look after herself. But uh, we we get out occasionally and hit a few balls. Correct. Well, we all we all send our love to Jan as well, you know. If, before you, do you remember Ken Rowe? Ken Rowe, I know the name absolutely, and I remember he when made I was he made, he made your your Davis Cup team. James yeah. Pring, James Pringle. James Pringle is from my home club in Dundalk. Under 12 national champion. Yeah. Uh, Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre Walsh, yes. <laughs> Karen Nugent. Absolutely. And Leslie O'Halloran. Yes. All of those have been on the squad and improved out of sight. They were terrific. Leslie O'Hara got a good world ranking. Maybe yeah, 200s or 100s, maybe 130, something like that. Yeah, I think she was very high, played Fed yeah. Cup, and then she was... And, and, and you know what, John? I think she went on and actually became the number one player in the world over 40. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and she smoked like a chimney. Smokes and, and I, yeah, absolutely. Unbelievable. Like she changed smoke and she was as fit as a flea. She didn't have an ounce of fat on her. She yeah, no, she, she, she's an Irish tennis legend. That's um, unbelievable. You mentioned th th those guys. I, I remember when I was training with you over in, in Wrexham, yeah. and I, I never met Ken Rowe, but I remember you mentioning the name and that all these players had trained here as well. Yeah. And yeah, um, so yeah, you, you, you've You've, you've trained all the best in, in the UK <laughs> and the Republic of Ireland and, and Ireland. While I was working with Mike, I realised how expensive it was for him to actually play the game. And once they left school, we had some fantastic ball hitters in this country. And at school, at school leaving age, they seemed to just disappear. They dropped out of the game. And it was because, unless they were extremely wealthy, or they were good enough to get selected for Bisham or one of the... British squads, they just couldn't afford to play the game. We lost thousands of them. And that's really why I got into this niche of school leavers, picking them up, training them well, and giving them the opportunity to become good players. Because that's all, that's all I could do. And then I passed them on. Now, I, I was lucky because a lot of them went into British squads. Um, they went down to, um, to Queens and another place at Sutton. They got a, a squad at Sutton. And... Uh, Matt Smith went, triple is, whenever he went there, I think he got on the lager because he'd come back about a stone overweight and I'd have to get him fit again. I think actually that, that I sit here and, and I listen to your, your passion, your, your drive still, your, you know, it's, you were engulfed completely in, in this, you know, you and Jan, yes. you know, and the fact that, I mean, I am, but the players don't live with me. You know, I'm working 15 hours a day, but they don't live in the house, you know, with me and my yes. and kids. But It wouldn't work anywhere there. How, how did you go from that and how was that transition to then not having it? Awful. If, if I could do it now, I would. I, there's nothing I miss more than coaching. Yeah. It, it, it's amazing. But, you know, when, when I actually... When the squad closed, Mike Walker took it over, by the way, when... Uh, I think it was 2000, 2004 or 2003, around, around that time. That I finished. Yeah, that sounds about right. The Walker took it over. Yeah, you were still there with, with, with Mike. Oh, uh, yes, I worked with him. I worked with him for about two years to, to help yeah. him out. Yeah. But, but he had good players. But it, really it good players, yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't the same because he had to... He had to buy a couple of houses and then they just looked after themselves in those houses. Now, that to me is, that's, then you've got you to have very, very uh, well-disciplined guys, particularly at that age, because it was very easy to get out and do things yeah. that really weren't conducive to good tennis. 
but he, he, he did well. I mean, he, he did his, he did a good job. I think Mike, Mike Price helped him out there as well. So, yeah. um, and he got some good players. I mean, I don't know how they went on particularly, but I went back from there. I started working with Andrew Lewandowski with the under 14s and under 12s. And I was involved with Mark Cox, who uh, headed up the uh, Rover scheme. And so I worked as an independent coach with him. I think Olga Moritz over and one or two others. And, uh, and that was really the end of my association with the LTA. But from there, I went and I worked with uh, Barry Scholar for a little while at Bath. And yep. very, really enjoyed. He does a damn good job down there. He really does. And he's got some great coaches. Dave Samuels there, um, Macca, uh, Ian McDonald, yes. Eve Langley. Langley. She's married now, so she won't be Eve Langley anymore. Yeah. There's another place, you see, uh, who do a really good job and have brought a lot of good players through. They had a tie up with Millfield and took some players from there. And then from Barry, Mike then set up Win Tennis in. Mike Walker, this is in uh, Bisham, and he said, "Oh, I need some help. Can you come in?" So he, whenever he needed help, he always picked the phone and said, "Ixy, can you come in?" No, he didn't. John, will you come and uh, give me a hand on the squad? So I did. Thoroughly enjoyed that. As I say, I've been so lucky. Been so lucky because um, I've always dropped in somewhere that that was beneficial to me as well as to the players I was working with. And I, Mike. Mike and the, the crowd there, they had some great players at Bishop. Some lots of very, very good players that have been around this country. I'll tell you what, wish I'd been around when they were when they were on the on the market. I'd have had a few of those. <laughs> I was listening to the podcast. I know it would be hard to believe, but John Hicks, and sorry to do this, John, but John Hicks is 87 years old now. So that's coaching till 83. 87 years old. And this brings me on to my next thing. We're we're fortunate to be able to look at John during this interview. He is fit as a fiddle still at 87 years old. Come on, we can maybe get some, we can make, there's maybe a market for this, John, you know, that we can get some kind of fitness videos going. How how do you do it? And what, what, because when I called you the other day, Jan picked up and said, John's in the other room on the bike exercising. So, So tell us about your daily exercise routine still. Right. First of all, the biggest secret of all, get a wife 13 years younger than you. That's the the first tip. That'll keep you young. Right. And I, I mean, I've always, I, in the lounge, I have some light weights by the, by the side of the settee where I am. And I will do 300 curls, about a hundred, um, reverse curls and then bend and presses about a hundred of those every day. Uh, I go for a walk. I went for a walk this morning, three miles in uh, 37 minutes. So, no, that, that's a lie. 57 minutes, I'm sorry. 50, four miles in 57 minutes today. Sorry. And uh, I, always, I always do a minimum of three miles a day. And I'm on the bike. Now, the bike I do, I'm going to stop because my back's killing me. But it, it's... Uh, I would do between 40 and 55K a day on the bike and love it. And what I don't do, and I'm going to tell you this, and this is important, I don't stretch enough. Yeah. I used to be mad about stretching. The kids, I used to drive them bunkers to stretch, cool down and stretch, cool down and stretch. Now I'm suffering. My back's killing me. I've just started again. And I tell you, I don't have a great range of movement with, compared with what I did have when I was only maybe five years ago. But anyway, it'll come back. It'll come back and I'll, I'll keep it up. I think, I think fitness is, is part of, part of um, living a long, healthy life. You know, no secret. You look amazing, you look amazing, John. You look amazing. It was the I, first I, thing that I haven't seen you in a long time, and you look you look the exact same as when I saw you ten I'm years really, ago, twelve years ago. Unbelievable. I'm really, I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased. Um, and to talk to you and to talk about tennis is fantastic for me because I, I could do this all day, every day. 
and, and yeah. we were there every moment of it. So, my last, my last couple of things, John. Yeah. What, what do you think of the way tennis is going currently? And if there was one thing yes. that you would change about tennis, what would it be? Now, that, that's difficult. I wouldn't change anything about tennis. I think tennis is a great game. You would say that. And a you... great game and played by fantastic people. And I think the level, the quality of the tennis that's produced day in, day out by revered, uh, quite old players mm -hmm. and fantastic young players who are suddenly coming into the game as ready-made players. I mean, they... They're so they're so knowing about the game and, and they're so good at competing. I mean, this um, Sissipas, Medvedev, and a guy I raved about, and they said to me, Chung, Chung, what happened to Chung? Yeah, I think he got injured, but you'll be back, I think. You'll He's a good player, good player. And I also think that mobile giants, unfortunately, are the thing of today. I don't think the the small man has much chance in today's um, game. The, you see, with the, with the smaller mat, the balls are slower, the courts are slower, and physical power is really important. And now, the bigger man, who used to, the little man used to be able to move around and embarrass because they weren't as, as fit and as agile as, as the smaller man, they're all big and they're fast and they're well balanced and they're, they're, they're tremendous. They're mobile giants and hit the ball fantastically well. Okay. About the about being big, about being strong. Do you th or do you think this? I do. This I do. You do. Yeah. I do. I think that weight of you know the balls are slower and big serves. I mean, badminton balls. You need a massive serve now. I mean, before you get away with the light balls, you get away with a, a, a decent serve. Now you've got to have a massive serve to be effective. Yeah. But I remember coming back from a trip to I can't think where I'd been. I think it might have been to America or or not. But I came back and Richard said I, I, he asked me to do this sort of thing to, to a crowd of, of uh, coaches. And I said, well, it's pretty obvious that the ball is is being taken earlier, heavier. I said, I said, our coaching, our coaching books told us to hit the ball between knee and waist. A falling ball uh, at around knee high was in the coaching. I mean, God, these guys, I said, are hitting the ball shoulder high, early, heavy. I said, the thing is, they're winning points from the back very easily. I said, I think with the slower balls and as the game slows down even more, they'll have to become more effective in all parts of the court. I think the volley will become extremely important to gain. Yeah. And, uh, and it has for, for hours because they don't miss. Yeah, absolutely. And what about, what about one piece of advice? And I want to do this in two parts. What, no, three parts. One piece of advice for an, a young up-and-coming player. Right. Young up-and-coming player. Find yourself a sponsor. Yeah. Because I, I'm sorry, nothing has changed from when I first started coaching. No money, no future. In my opinion. Now, yeah. if you know differently, fine. With good money, you'll get yourself, a, you'll get yourself good facilities, you'll get yourself a good trainer, and you'll get yourself a good coach. Yeah. All of those to become a, a good tenant. But winning is really important. There's no doubt about it. But preparing to win is much more important. Very good. Ad advice for a young coach coming through. Only coach if you love the game and you want to be in the game for anybody's sake but your own. You've got to give, give, give. Yep. And you have to have humility. Uh, you've got to face disappointment, criticism. Uh, I would excuses but try not to make them always be confident 
believe in yourself only one person is right and that's you if you believe that what you're doing is right very good john that brings me on i i asked for a couple i asked a few players um and, and one of the players that, that you'd work with before this and one of the players everyone wrote beautiful things and i'll and I'll, i can send them on to you as well but one one person who had said some lovely things said he would say to players that we can talk we can this is you saying to players yes. we can talk for it, about it for an hour and then decide i'm right or we can decide <laughs> or we can decide that i'm right now and we just get more of it. <laughs> yes that, that that sounds right but i, I think you see, if you don't have self belief no. how how can the player believe you yeah, you have to lead players and yeah. you can't make excuses you can't tell lies you have to be honest yeah. and i always used to you know I, I was always honest i would tell a player if he had no future he had no future yeah, yeah. but you'd be a good coach you've learned a lot here you know get out there find some players get them to be better than you were all of my players were better than i was because that's that's one of the things you have to do ensure that they're as good as they can be they've got to fulfill their full potential yeah halfway won't do you've got to make them become as good as they can be and one of the ways of doing that is to make sure that their body works for them physical fitness their mind works for them mental toughness and a game that they can take on court with confidence and believe it very very good very good John. and and one bit of advice for tennis parents, for parents of a, of a, of a young up-and-coming tennis player. The same as for the player. Find a sponsor. <laughs> because, because, <laughs> listen, you, you know as well as I do, without money, they have no chance. It's a funny game. It's not like football, where you can find a bit of grass, find a few other guys get a football and go out and play and if you're any good uh, you'll go to the local club and they'll give you a game and you'll progress and it won't cost you anything if you want to play tennis it costs you for 500 quid to buy the gear yeah. and uh, and then you've got to find a coach i don't know what coaches charge these days but i know this whoever came on the squad with me they had the best deal that god ever gave to any tennis player yeah. they were getting full board, four hours um, racket work, two hours training, and individual work when required, if they wanted it, for £50 a week. And I got them £40 of that on the, on the YPS scheme. <laughs> well, it wasn't, but I suppose the... Not to drag you into another conversation, John, because you've been over with your time, but how... That, that, I guess that would be the question that I would imagine people are listening to. How were you able to do that? You know, because obviously you need to make a living. You know, you need to be providing food. You need to be doing all of these different things as well. You know, how, how were you able to make it so affordable? Well, in actual fact, LTA money to help me. Yeah. Which was help no end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the courts, Jeff Roberts was remarkably generous with court costs and things of that nature yeah. and uh, I had a lot of players right. playing, playing uh, good money I mean I made a, I made a, a good profit yeah. and it was a, it, it, it was a, a good life a great life I thoroughly enjoyed I mean but I, I was an independent coach doing other work as well I did I did national work for Wales I did county I had Cheshire County players coming in for individual lessons and things like that. You know, I was when I'd finished that, I'd probably do four individual lessons a day, and I'd work weekends. I I sometimes had private weekend squads for maybe local players or local adults on a on a, a different. I had different ways. Of, this, this was to keep good players in the game. Yeah, yeah, and to. For them to tell people how good this squad was, and yeah. they did it extremely well. No, so, no, well, so why should you get paid for that? Yeah, yeah. You know, normally, if I put if I put that in a, in a paper, it cost me a thousand pound for a page advert. Yeah. 
yeah, it's finding different ways of getting value. But I, I, I just think now, now, nowadays, and I don't know if you have an opinion on this, it, it feels like more and more people are after individualized programs, you know, it's the way this sport's done. Yes. So, and it's, so, so actually individualized program means more expensive. So, so it's actually, it's a, what you've done was, was, and I think it was such an amazing model the way you did it and obviously executed it amazingly well, you know, was get like-minded people work unbelievably hard together. You know, we're going we're to create this amazing environment. Everyone's going to push each other. Great team. Amazing. Yeah. The, the fear a little bit, I think nowadays is obviously I'm dealing with a lot of parents and players we can create that but at the same time the demand is so high on little charlie having x amount yeah. of individuals and little charlie only hitting with billy bobby and whoever and, and you know and, and that's in some ways if we're not careful that's going to kill the sport as well because it's just going to get more and more expensive doing it that killed way. it in, killed it in britain some years ago yeah there you go if you, if you were wealthy you tended to run the program yourself and, as you say, demanded what you wanted for Little Billy. And yeah. Little Billy went nowhere because he was under so much pressure. Yeah. And he was very conscious of the fact that mummy and daddy are paying a fortune. I've yeah. got to be a good tenant. No chance. No chance at all. The way that we've set it up is we've been able to look after some players who are bringing different value. I guess the, the value comes in monetized ways or yeah. it comes in ways of, of setting what one certain reputation setting cultures you know doing work hitting with younger players you know so so we we've, we've tried to create that model where it does provide the opportunity for for other players that, that don't have that that wealth yeah. the problem that i can't i can't give a solution to is i can't start paying for airline tickets and i can't start <laughs> paying for hotels for people no. <laughs> how, uh, many, I, I, how many of the players you've got oh here's me asking you how many of the players that you have got dan um are on the circuit because you have senior players don't you as well yes we do so we'll have 15 or 20 that's a lot yeah. isn't it i mean that's fantastic yeah we'll, something i've always wanted to do but uh, i couldn't i mean i couldn't be away any more than I already was with the, with the juniors. I mean, then to say, oh, I'm just going to go for about 15 weeks with the seniors. I mean, yeah, a great chance. <laughs> so I, I found a niche, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And you have more than a niche, because you have, um, you have an academy as such, don't you? Yeah, we do, yeah. Yes. Yeah, which is, we do. It's great. I love it. Yeah, and, and if you, I know, I'm sure, of course you do. How, blame me, you've been doing it for how long now? Ten years, ten, ten years. years. Can you guys see John Hicks? This is this is how how amazing John Hicks is. We're we're an hour into the podcast and he's now leading it. It doesn't take you know, <laughs> much, so much belief. It's amazing. Uh, yeah. Dan, just just to, just to jump in there, uh, uh, John and Dan, it's probably something that I feel quite passionately about as well. That. Uh, in, in Ireland, I, I'd work closely with uh, Paul Casey, Stephen Nugent a lot, and um, we'd have a, a, quite a similar mindset to that in in the way of um, making tennis available to as many people as possible with yeah. that mindset. And and I'm I'm a big believer in that as well. I would have grown up playing football a lot here in Ireland. Would have been uh, just even from the you know, the social point of view, being able to go into a squad with like-minded guys, like-minded girls, you know, that they're all on the same hymn sheet and you've got a guy, or, you know, or a girl leading that show. In your case, Johnny, you were, you, were, you were the man leading it when, you know, I was over there. And, you know, I, I think in my own coaching, um, bringing back to Ireland, I would have bring, brought a lot of that philosophy back into my own coaching. And I'm a big believer of that as well, that I understand that everybody hasn't got not everybody has the money to be able to spend it on an individualized program. I know what the cost is in having an individualized program, but I also know the value in having, you know, a squad of like-minded people that want to work hard. Yes. That, that, that you've already mentioned it, that all, like, you know, players make players, or players make coaches, yeah. you know, and I, I have to say, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's something that if you can get the environment right, like you did, I'm always aspiring to try and get that environment 
as best I can. I think you, you, you're going to give yourself a really good opportunity and the people around you are going to give each other a good opportunity to, to, to push each other to get the best out of one another. Yeah, the, and, cream, um, the cream always comes to the top. If you've got enough, you've got enough people who are trying hard enough, people with ability will, will come to the top and will go out and succeed. There's no... Very yeah. good, John. John, I, at this point, I want to, you know, on behalf of myself and John, and, and also everyone in the tennis world, because people that are, that are listening to this, I know are going to take so much from it for you to have given your time up, time up a massive thank you. But my last words, actually, I want to leave to Mark Hilton, because when I, when I think of, of you, John, I think of hundreds of players, but, but I was brought up in an era where I was so close to Mark and you were Mark's coach. And, and we did a podcast with Mark the, the other day and I, I said this to Mark, I, I always found you guys had an aura around you, you know, as close as I was to you. And I think you, you did such an amazing job with so many people, but I saw it very much firsthand almost on a weekly basis with Mark. And when I reached out to Mark, what, what he said is he said, I think the biggest compliment that I can give John is that he shaped so many of my values, beliefs and philosophies in life and tennis. He was the closest thing to a second dad to me growing up. And although he was my tennis coach, on reflection, his priority was my development as a person. I'm truly thankful he has played such a significant role in my development. I love the man. And, and, and I don't think that could have been put any better. And, that's very humbling. And, and that's, that's how I know hundreds and hundreds of people feel about you, John. You know, you've had, you've had more impact than, than you could ever know. You know, and, and for us to have the pleasure to sit and talk tennis with you for over an hour has been really special, you know, and, and we, need to, we need to do it more often and we need to get everybody together. So a big, big thank you for your time and, and to Jan um, as well for helping you get onto the Zoom call, you know, without, without her, it wouldn't have happened. So thank you very much. Dan, thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I, I do hope we have the chance to chat again. Thanks very much, John. You're Thank you, John. Thank you for listening, guys. And a big heartfelt thank you to John and also his wife, Jan. What a privilege that was to, to speak to John, to hear the stories, the laughter, the passion uh, that, he, that he has for the sport. I certainly feel inspired listening listening to the podcast and listening to John. I hope you guys do too. Keep subscribing, liking and sharing the, the podcast. Get it out there. Let's get it into the right hands. There's some amazing messages there that are educating people, entertaining people, and we hope energizing people through these periods. My name's Dan Kiernan. My co-host, John McGann. Thank you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.